Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Evagemra, and I'm so glad you're here. We meet weekly, and we do all sorts of things here, but primarily we talk about faith and culture, and we've been in this awesome series called Dear Lena, as you know, but every so often I run interviews with some fascinating people, and today is no exception to that rule. Just have an awesome guest I cannot wait to introduce you to. In fact, many of you are here because you've seen the ads, and you know that I'll be interviewing, uh, I call her the queen of Christian radio. It's Janet Parshall, and she is the host of In the Market with Janet Parshall. And if you're not familiar with her, man, I don't know what's wrong with you. She runs a two-hour nationally syndicated program by Moody Radio. It's heard on over 700 radio stations nationwide, um, She, which I, I believe translates into millions of people and has won a number of awards for her work, has worked at extremely high levels. She's met Larry King, which in my mind is pretty high um, reviews there. But more importantly, uh, this you might not know about. Janet. She is from Wisconsin. In fact, I believe that she graduated from Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is where I went to medical school, more or less, in the city of Milwaukee and went to church in Waukesha. And one of the things she and I share in common, which has been something that has endeared me to her even more than I already liked her, is the fact that she is a diehard, avid Green Bay Packers fan. So with that in mind, Janet, I'm excited about our conversation today so much. Go Pack. I'm so excited we get to spend well, let, time let's start, together. Let's start with a couple of like basic questions, Janet, right? I mean, first of all, what do you think happened here a few weeks ago? <laughs> well, the, we went so close. We went so close and a couple of things happened. First of all, when you're given the gift of not one, but two interceptions and you're first in goal and you can't deliver... Maybe you're not supposed to go to the Super Bowl. Number two, you were yeah, playing. Do you blame the- Aaron or do you, do you blame the coach? Uh, well, no, I tell you what, it's the coach can call the play. The quarterback has to execute it. So I have to tell you that it's a combination. But, you know, one of the things Bill Belichick loves to tell his team is they have to play something called situational football. They run out of the locker room onto the field past a whiteboard, and he's enumerated all these things he wants his players to do. And I've taken one of those because I think it's a good good adage for life that they should play situational football. And what that means is you're cognizant of what the play is that's being called, but be ready to pivot on the balls of your feet and change if you see a move in the defensive line. I think for us as believers, that's a great adage, by the way. I want to play this game, serving my king on the balls of my feet. I want to be light, fast, reactive to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. So I really love to pull that analysis from football. So uh, it's an execution part on um, the player and the quarterback. Also, they didn't have enough coverage for Tom Brady. So I tell you, in the end, as much as I wanted my guys to get there again, they did not play to the level that they should have to get to the Super Bowl. You know, look, I have I have a much more uh, just just inside scoop. I think Aaron Rodgers shouldn't have gotten into this dating relationship. Every time yes, he dates someone, yes. he cannot keep his focus. And so, so I don't know. I've got theories about it. I'm a huge Brett Favre fan. I'm still crying about that. I I mean, I think that guy could have delivered in that moment. And I know every Green Bay Packer person listening right now is probably mad at me. But I have, you know, I have my reservations about Aaron. I know, I know he's one of the best quarterbacks. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Aaron because I could go on forever. But I found found something else interesting about you, which I did not know. I mean, you're not just naturally a football fan because you're from Wisconsin. You had it in your blood. Tell us, tell me a little 
little bit about your family background. Oh, I was so blessed because I was raised in a sports family. My dad was a football coach and an athletic director all my life. At one point in time, he even coached in the Big Ten. He coached at Iowa State University. When he graduated from Northwestern University, where he played football, he was actually drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he was friends with people who went on to be coaches in the NFL. And at one point in time, he was even asked to come and be an assistant coach at the Denver Broncos. So that NFL stuff just weaves around. But I got to tell you, going back to the Packers, my dad um, would cut, would scout for the um, Broncos. And Red Miller was a great friend to dad. They played football together. And my dad would go and scout at Lambeau Field. Gospel truth. I would literally mm-hmm. stand on Lambeau Field. My daddy, whose name was Vince, was on one side. Vince Lombardi was on the other. I stood between two Vinces watching them, one coaching, one scouting. And I'm telling you, I was standing there between giants. It was one of those memories where I go, thank you, God. This was nothing but a gift from you. And I appreciate it. That's incredible. Honestly, that is just uh, so unique. I just was so thrilled to hear that. And then y'all like, so, so Waukesha is your, is your hometown? We moved there when I was in fourth grade, lived there all the way until the time the Lord called us to Washington, D.C., met Craig there, was raised in a Christian home. Let me back up a little bit. Raised in a Christian home, mom and dad, followers of Jesus Christ, Moody Radio in the background all the time, Founders Week. Boy, that was a big week in our house. But being in a Christian home, as you know, doesn't make you a Christian, as Billy Sunday said, any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. So they gently but firmly and consistently nudged us to be participants in the body of believers. So Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek, church camp, the whole nine yards, I was there. And when I was six years old, we were sitting in Sunday school and the teacher said, <laughs> not politically correct methodology today, but it worked for this girl. The teacher said, how many of you don't want to go to hell? Boop. My hand went right up and I thought, I don't want to go to hell. That teacher who I get to meet someday in glory, but whose name currently escapes me, sat there with me and two other kids my age. And she opened the word of God and she said, I want you to put your name in this verse. For God so loved Janet that he gave his only begotten son that if Janet believes in him, Janet won't perish, but Janet will have everlasting life. And I bowed my head and I asked the Lord to be my savior. I was the last one out of the Sunday school class. My mother is pacing back and forth. Where have you been? Where have you been? I couldn't find you. I said, mama, I just got saved. And that's how my life started with Jesus as savior. He became Lord at church camp several years later when after hearing missionaries challenge us for a full week, we were given the opportunity to say yes to him, no matter the cost, no matter where he would send us. And we symbolized that by throwing a small little stick on the bonfire. I remember this like it was last Mm -hmm. Saturday night. And I threw that stick, fully convinced God would call me to be a foreign medical missionary. I loved missions. I loved medicine. And I thought that's where I would go. Well, the Lord had a few other plans in mind for that. He sent me to (laughs) Babylon and there's a whole lot of broken hearts in this town as well. So I guess I'm still a medical missionary. I'll tell you, that's so interesting. And you, you make a distinction that I think is important. You talk about, you know, because there's a lot of discussion in Christian circles, like this Jesus, when you, when you get saved, is he you're just your savior? Is he Lord of your life? But I really think that if you come to Christ, like your story is very similar to mine. I had a very, you know, sort of Christian background growing up in the church, hearing the gospel. But there is something that, you know, you kind of question, well, does a child, you know, when you receive Jesus, do you understand the full impact of it? And I almost feel like you're teasing that out a bit, which is you get a little older and now you really kind of give your life yeah. to him. Yes. Whereas like, I feel like if you're maybe, what are your thoughts about that in the adult world? Like if a person, is there such a thing as two separate moments or do you believe that really a person ought to 
embrace Christ as Savior and Lord at the same time when they come to Christ? Boy, that's a great question. And it really causes you to have to stop and think a little bit. So let me just speak from my experience. I recognized immediately that I was a sinner separated from God, even though I was six. The reality of that chasm created by sin was real, profound, and knew it could only be bridged by Christ. But that's a whole lot different than saying, I don't want to believe this because my mom and my dad believe it. I want to believe it, and I want to know why I believe it. In fact, when we were going to a church in Brookfield, Wisconsin, you could not become a member of that church until you read Dr. Paul Little's book, Know What You Believe and Why You Believe It. Mm -hmm. And boy, I tell you, I look back low those many years, and I think, thank goodness, I want it written on the tablets of my heart, like it says in Scripture. I want to know why it is I believe what I believe. I want to know what orthodoxy is. What are the cornerstone foundations of my belief? What are the majors? What are the minors? What are the areas that are there can be friendly conversation and disputes, but do not auger out the authenticity of scripture. So it's that much deeper, much profound, if I can use this word, that much more mature moment when now it's not just saying, yes, Lord, and if I can put it in a colloquial phrase, getting your quote, fire insurance, it's a matter of falling madly, deeply, passionately, and this is you to a T, Lena, in the person with the person of Jesus. It just, it pours out of you that you want to obey his principles and precepts, not because he's a cosmic bully playing whack-a-mole, but because he's the unconditional lover of your soul. I am a married woman. We're coming up to our 50th wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. I married him when I was six, if you're doing the math, so you can figure it out. But we, we, <laughs> we were high school sweethearts. I go out of my way to please him, to love him, to let him know how valued he is in my life. If I would do that for my earthly mate, why wouldn't I do that even more for the one who knows me so intimately, he knows the numbers of hairs on my head. So this love relationship comes when you're willing to say, in total and complete submission, yes, Lord. I said, yes, Savior, but now I want to say, yes, Lord, which is always Jesus first, seeking him and being declaring and declaring along with Brother Paul, in him I live and move and have my being. Jesus to the edge of my skin makes him Lord, not just Savior. That's good. Now, you met Craig in high school. That's your husband. Yes. And did did you feel like God called you to marry him first? Then you both went to law school. How did tell us a little bit about how you ended up being in the legal <laughs> Well, world. that is such an interesting story because just besides, as much besides, as besides I wish. Well, I was going to say, besides the fact that you backslid there for a moment, I mean, I don't know how you ended up in, in law school, but. <laughs> well, I have to tell you that Craig was unsaved when I, we went to the same high school, we went to the same junior high and high school together. And he was one of those people that I always noticed but he was forbidden fruit. He didn't know the Lord as his personal savior and being raised in a Christian home, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I wanted God's best, not what I wanted. I wanted him to give me the desires of my heart. And it was pretty black and white that unless this was a man who loved Jesus more than he would ever love me, this was not gonna work out. But this guy knew who I was and he wanted to gut my worldview. So he started to challenge me and he said, I'd like to talk to you. I said, come on, we'll talk. Now we're not dating because you know I can't and I won't because you and I have a different worldview, but I'll talk with you. This guy at 17 was reading John Paul Sartre and Frederick Nietzsche, and he was studying existentialism wow. and nihilism. Clearly, as I look back, he had a hole in his heart, and he was looking for a way in which he could fill that hole. So we'd sit and talk, and I kept thinking, who's the smartest Christian I know? I know, C.S. Lewis. So I gave him a copy <laughs> of Mere Christianity. He ate that up, gobbled it up, gave him every C.S. Lewis book we had in our home library. 
And when he had read them all, he said, I'll believe in this Jesus of yours if I can talk to somebody who's communicated with the dead. It's the 1960s. It's all experiential, right? He's got to have some sort of empirical substantiation of the truth of all of this. Um, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my word, what do I do? Well, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, there was a branch of New Tribes Bible Institute. Those are my best buddies. Those were my best buddies. On Friday nights, I'd go up to the school. I'd sit cross-legged on the floor of the barracks, and I'd have these missionaries who were either back home on furlough or were doing some more training tell me what it was like to take the light of the world to dark, unknown tribes where there were shaman and the occult was prevalent. And in my mind, I'm going shaman, the occult, talking to the dead. It's all got to fit in there somewhere. So I said, hey, go up to New Tribes. I bet they'll answer your question. So without telling me, he goes up one Saturday morning, swings open the door, grabs the first mission school student he could find, this poor child, and says, I want to talk to somebody about communicating with the dead. I'm sure not a daily occurrence at New Tribes, but they went and got the head of the Bible school who came down, Bob Kaminsky. He's now in the presence of the Lord. I very much consider him Craig's spiritual father. Let Craig ask every question he could. And as a wise missionary, he finally looked at Craig and said, now I have a question for you. And Craig goes, okay, shoot, what's your question? And he said, where are you going to go when you die? So Craig paused and he realized, well, Jean-Paul Sartre didn't give me that answer. He said there was no exit, that there was nothing beyond the grave. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche was into a whole worldview based on the concept of nothingness. So there was no answer there. And he realized that Jesus was the answer. So he bowed his head right there in the lobby of the school and asked the Lord into his heart. He gets in his car, he drives home. Bob calls me and he goes, Janet, keep your mouth closed, which has been a challenge my entire life, but I kept my mouth closed. He said, (laughs) when he shows up, he will tell you if this is true. So I'm waiting for him to show up at the front door. And he said, hi. I said, hey, what's new? And he looked at me and he said, I just got saved. And from that moment on, I thought, oh my, this is the man of God's own choosing. Bob then discipled him every single Saturday for the next six months. You talk about going from Savior to Lord. Had him fall in love with understanding and plumbing the Word of God. And he grew magnificently under the mentorship of Bob Kaminsky. And so we really, when we started dating, we were 17. We got engaged. We were married at 21. Uh, We graduated from Carroll College together. Craig went on to law school. I got my degree Uh in music and opera. I thought I was going to be a singer all my life. So Craig goes off to law school. We start having kids while he's in law school. When when he graduated from law school, they gave me a certificate because they said any wife that helps her husband get through law school deserves this certificate. So Craig says, I'm his pretend lawyer wife. So there you go. (laughs) Well, that's so interesting. Well, then how did you phase into radio? Well, that's also an interesting story. So the Lord blesses us with Sarah, Rebecca, Samuel, and Joseph. We had four kids in six years. And I'm living, quite honestly, in this state of bliss, this naivete that the whole world loved and supported everything I believed as a Christian. And then I had kids. And then they walked out the front door. And then they would come home from school. And my oldest, as an example, said, Mama, we sat in a magic circle today. Well, though that immediately caught my attention. And then she said, we passed around a red scarf. And when the scarf got to us, we had to answer three questions. Do you bite your nails? Do you wet your bed? And if there was a divorce, what parent would you rather live with? And I'm telling you, Lena, I felt like the kitchen floor just opened up and swallowed me up. And it was that aha moment where the Lord taps you on the shoulder. In my case, I think it was a punch and said, welcome. Two mutually exclusive worldviews fighting for predominance in the human heart. Choose you this day whom you will serve. So Craig did his homework. I did my homework. I was president of the PTA. He was uh, obviously a First Amendment lawyer. We're digging into this stuff. And we thought, 
this is an absolute full-on court press against biblical values. So we started speaking up about some of the concerns we had. Uh, and the next thing you know, we got invited to midweek Bible studies and the local radio station said, Janet, I want you to come on and share your concerns. 500 watt tower, literally in a cornfield. And I d- shared what my concerns were. And after the show, the manager came up to me and said, hey, Janet, how would you like your own talk show? And of course, because ignorance uh-huh. is bliss, I said, sure, for two years, because my kids would go out the door at eight, they'd come back at three. Our home life wouldn't have been disrupted. That was a custom design classroom. God taught me that radio is far more about listening than it is about talking and that there's this huge gasm in the church today in what I called applied Christianity. We're amening and underlining with yellow magic marker on Sunday. Monday rolls around. We're deer in the headlights. We don't have a clue how to apply the whole counsel of God's word to the world around us. And I thought, wow, there's a bridge that has to be built there. So Long story short, I got asked to serve on the board of Concerned Women for America, head by Beverly LaHaye, Dr. Tim LaHaye's wife. And she mm-hmm. said, she said, she called me up one day and she said, God has told Tim and me that you're supposed to come to Washington. We want to groom you to be the next president of Concerned Women for America. So I turned to my husband in the midst of the raving feminist movement, by the way, where I could have had mm-hmm. that worldly moment and said, hey, pack your bags. We're going to D.C. And I thought, uh, no, what do we do? So I looked at Craig and I said, what do we do? And he wisely said, Janet, you know, when the Lord calls a couple, he'll call us together. Let's just wait and see what the Lord does. Lena, less than a week later, he gets a phone call from a gentleman by the name of John Whitehead, who heads the Rutherford Institute, which was a precursor to the American Center for Law and Justice. And he said, Craig, I need you out in Washington. I want you to run our East Coast operation. So Craig looks at me and he goes, God doesn't have to shout. We got that one loud and clear. So in 1993, we left. We literally were living in the house that Craig grew up in, Lena. This was the house he grew up in as a child. I was fully convinced that I would have children and grandchildren and I would die and breathe my last in the home where Craig was raised. In the margin of his Bible, (laughs) Craig had written a date 10 years earlier that said that God would call Abraham out of his father's house. And Craig said, watch this. I think God is going to call us someday. We didn't know where, we didn't know how. So when that call came from Washington, he opened his Bible and said, he prepared us over a decade ago. So we came out to Washington. I worked at CWA and predominantly my job was in front of the media. I got pushed in front of the microphone. I would be her co-host on her radio show. This is how I came to meet Larry King. I started doing secular radio guest shots. I was showing up on CNN and MSNBC and Sean Hannity's program and all of these other programs. I'm a kid from Waukesha. What am I doing on these platforms? And I'm telling you, I was a reticent servant because I thought this is a town that has more PhDs than any other city in the United States. Of America. I am a kid from the Midwest. My dad's a football coach. How am I going to go toe to toe with these people? And I got to tell you, the Lord is always the professor. He is always calling class. It is always an instructional classroom for him. So he taught me episode by episode, year by year, what it meant to contend in the marketplace of ideas. And I had this absolute major shift in my thinking that it wasn't about going in with your white paper report and your bullet points and being able to annihilate the person on the other side of the table. It was about showing them the love of Christ while winsomely speaking about transcendent truths. And I had episode after episode after episode where that happened. And I'll share one with you. You talked about my knowing Larry King. I met Larry on multiple occasions. We know each other on a fir- we knew each other on a first name basis. First name basis. 
I was doing uh, the radio version of Crossfire on Mutual One Radio, where mm-hmm. I would do it. Um, and I this was Pat Buchanan was doing it. Uh, and Bob Beckel was on the other side. And Barry Lynn was on the other side. And I was the, the second to Pat Buchanan. So when he couldn't do it, I was his substitute. And Larry would do the program ahead of time. So we'd see each other and we'd go up and down the elevator together and we'd have all these talks. And then he invited me to do his show. And he was most gracious, most loving. And would and this happened oh so many times, Lena. It's unbelievable. He was spiritually hungry. There was no question about mm-hmm. that. Multiple heart attacks, six wives, um, just a, 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 a Jewish gentleman by ethnicity, but non-practicing, and just couldn't resolve this issue of Jesus. And I remember in the studios at CNN in Washington D.C., we go to a commercial break. And by the way, God puts His people everywhere. The cameramen were believers. And Larry leans over, complete with his suspenders, and he goes, Janet, how do I know that God is real and how can I know him personally? And I'm going, oh, Father, help me. I got 90 seconds to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Larry. Now, I know that there were a myriad of others. Um, Ann Graham Lotz did this. Franklin Graham. Billy Graham did it. John MacArthur did it. Mm -hmm. Greg Laurie did. I mean, all of these believers who I will tell you, I don't believe were invited by accident. I believe it was Larry in a safe Mm -hmm. zone trying to find out if God was real and how you could know him personally. I have prayed for Larry for years and years and years on what I call my most wanted list, people you most want to see to come into glory Mm -hmm. with you. And I thought, Father, after all these wives where he hasn't found satisfaction, all of this notoriety hasn't found satisfaction, the threats to his health hasn't found satisfaction, the hole in his heart, like Blaise Pascal said, is a God-shaped void. Larry, just fill it with the one who wants to enter into your life. So I really grieved when I heard that he had died because uh, I knew his age. I knew some of the other uh, comorbidity situations he had. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a battle. And then last year he lost two of his five children in one year. That would be crushing for anyone. So these people that you want to pick up a rock and throw at your television set, they're people that need Jesus. And oh, Lena, I won't bore you, but I'm telling you, I could go on for an hour talking about people whose names you see in TV or on the Sunday morning talk shows or on the cover of Time magazine, who I have had spiritual conversations with behind the scenes, because in the end, all that the world has to offer is nothing. It's ash. It gets burnt up. It's not there. It doesn't have any eternal ramifications. Fame is fleeting. Vanity, vanity, right? And uh, this is a town whose primary energy source is ego. You get the best parking spots. You get a separate elevator. You get your face in the magazine. And when all of that dissipates, when you're no longer the majority or you weren't reelected, then what happens? It's why there's so much immorality that goes on. A lot of these people will come to Congress and four guys, for example, will bunk together in one apartment while the wife and kids stay home. And they do that because it's cheaper and it's temporary housing and they do what's called districting, which means they go home on Friday, they come back on Monday and temptation is through the roof because that's not the modality for a strong, healthy marriage. So these people need Jesus. And I discovered in short order, oh my goodness, that Washington DC is as much of a mission field as Papua New Guinea is. And it took that reorientating in my thinking that I had to be in a foreign country to be serving Christ rather than a town with foreign ideas. So this is what I call Babylon. I'm a war correspondent from Babylon, but it's also Rome. It's also Athens. And Paul walks around Athens for a year and a half, Bible historians tell us, before that famous speech in Acts 17. 
And there was a saying in his day that said there were more gods in Athens than there were men. So he was an astute, you talk about playing situational football. Paul was playing situational football. He was walking around Athens. He was hearing the deities. He was understanding what the gods were that they stood for. He was understanding what the whole was in the human heart. And then he had gravitas because I don't think the Epicureans and the Stoics invited anybody up there. I think you had to have a little muscle. How, how do you think the average Christian is screwing up those conversations in today's world? Because I feel like the, the tone has changed so much right now. Yeah. It, it, obviously, with I mean, you talk about this, even some, something simple like cancel culture. I mean, you could have been canceled at any point in your 20, 30, 40 years of doing this. I mean, you're showing up, speaking something that's not popular, and yet there's a way to do it. I feel like we've deviated from doing it right in the church now. What yeah. is your biggest observation as to how are we blowing it or are we just... Or are we not blowing it? And the world has gotten worse. Well, first of all, I so, so love the question. And I, it's it, it's perfect coming from you because you exude this. I said it before, and this isn't just hollow flattery. You just exude the love of Jesus. And I, I say that with a profound sense of seeing that manifest in your life. But I also say it with a word of caution when it comes to us as the church writ large. We have pulverized the meaning of the word love. We don't know what that means anymore. And I think we need to study Christ's example as what it means. That truth in love is not a multiple choice test. It's not an either or. It's a both in equal balance. So people have to sense that you care about them first. It doesn't mean you affirm their lifestyle. It doesn't mean you embrace their politics. It doesn't mean that you happen to think that they have all the answers and you're just this poor, uneducated person in the back of the room. But if they see a genuine love for you, I think that they resonate with that. Can I give you an example uh, how God yeah. puts people in your life? So I became very good friends with Barry Lynn. He was for multiple years, the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. They want to strip any recognition of religious expression or our history from the cultural horizon. He would be 180 degree opposite of my worldview but I love the guy. He was as affable as can be. He was as warm as can be. And he would come on my show on a regular basis because I wanted to be a witness to him, number one. And number two, because I thought this is the idea of going back to the Epicureans and the Stoics. If you hear his worldview, it's going to sharpen your apologetic. Lincoln said, you spend 20% of your time preparing your case as a lawyer, 80% of your time preparing your opponent's case. So if you hear these other ideas, it will help you better contend. So he would likewise invite me to do things. So he invited me to a meeting of his organization where they viewed an independent film made by the actor Matthew Modine called Jesus Was a Communist. And he wanted me to come and be a part of a panel discussion. Now, the panel was made up of the head of the American Civil Liberties Union, the head of the National Councils of Churches, Barry, and the actor Matthew Modine, and me. Typical Washington, never balanced, never fair, okay? It's very often I've had that Daniel experience, but I don't go in alone. The Holy Spirit goes before me, with me, and empowers me. I don't go in qualified. He qualifies the called, and I go where he tells me to go. So they showed this film, and when it was all said and done, and the audience was, oh, if you could read faces, oh, Lena, I mean, it was like I was <laughs> the wicked stepsister in the room. And uh, you could tell that they were just waiting to pounce on me. And I said, well... You know, when all else fails, I just read the instructions. And I said, and I read the word of God. And I said, nowhere in there does it say that Jesus was a communist, but he did say that he was Lord. And he did say that he was the only name under heaven whereby people would come to faith in him. So I put out the C.S. Lewis argument. And I said, you know, so that means that Jesus is one of three things. He's either wildly out of his mind. He's a lunatic or he's terribly lying. And why in the world would people for thousands of years have followed a liar? That doesn't make any sense. Or the other option is 
He's exactly who he said he is. He's Lord of all. So the question isn't whether or not Jesus was a communist. The question is, what will we do with this Jesus? And when it was done, Matthew Modine, who's very tall, got me aside on the stage and he crossed his arms across his chest and he bent his head down and he looked down at me and he said, Janet, um, um, I, uh, I don't have the answers. I'm, uh, I'm just trying to ask questions. And I patted his hand, which was held on his chest. And I said, Matthew, that's how all of us start is by asking a bunch of questions. And I said, and when it's all said and done, I hope you'll find the answer. And I hope you will discover that his name is Jesus. And he got tears in his eyes. And I thought, Janet, you didn't come here to win the debate of whether or not Jesus was a communist. You came here to show the love of Christ to people who are angry at God, who are mad at God, who couldn't resolve the question of suffering in their life, who don't think that he's a kind God, who's been compassionate to them, who want to box a God in because they don't like the politics associated with God. All of those other reasons, which are ruses, smoke clouds, and fog. They want to know whether or not God is real and if they can know him personally, the same question that Larry King asked. So God has used those kinds of experiences to remind me that you have to love people first. I I didn't acquiesce on who Jesus was. I told the truth, mm-hmm. but you also want to let them know that you, you love them. And I, at the end, two women came up to me and they said, we're so glad you're here. We're, we're lesbians. We don't believe a thing you said, but we sure do love the way you said it. And I thought, thank you, That's God. Awesome. That was the whole point. That's the whole point, right? It's just like going back to Acts 17. Ah, this guy's you know, a babbler. And this one said, I want to hear some more. It, it's just so amazing, though, that what you've got and what the Lord, is, the opportunities he's put in your path and the open doors. I mean, it's. Just, I know there's people listening who are like, man, I, I, you know, I just want to do something for the Lord. And, you know, all ideas, I wake up in the morning, I go to my nine to five job, I come home, dirty dishes, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a sense of sort of monotony in most people's lives. And, and how, you know, how do you encourage those people to, mat- you know, to feel like their life matters for Jesus? Like, why do we get sucked into this way where it seems like if you're doing something on big stages with big audiences, you matter more to the Lord than if you're yeah. hidden in wow. your home, like maybe when you were in those early years? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need a radical definition of what a mission field is. And it goes back to what I said before. I've come to the conclusion that the mission field is the ground between your two feet. So even if you're making widgets on an assembly line, that's a mission field. And I'll bet if you were to say, Lord, in this mission field, I'm not wild about serving here. And I'll tell you what, a whole lot of missionaries are not wild about where they're serving on a foreign mission field either. So just understand that's part of being a missionary. Okay. It wasn't designed to be comfortable and easy. It's designed to be sacrificial and to practice submission. So in that assembly line, if you were to say, God, There are people up and down this line whose hearts you know. Your word tells me that I look on the outside, but you look on the inside. God, quicken my heart. Help me to be a good listener. Give me the ears on my heart to hear somebody else's story. And God, open a door of opportunity for me to be able to talk to that person and to be able to hear where they're coming from and let them know they're valued. That as boring as making widgets might be, God loves them, God hears them, God knows them, and God has a plan for their life. And right now, even if it's just making widgets, he hasn't abdicated the throne room and he's not abducted. He's not taken you out of his presence. So you need to say, what can I do, Lord, to really let my light so shine before men when I'm on that assembly line? But I think the idea is we, when we platform people, and I'll tell you what, for years, I'd look at people on a stage and I'd go, I'm never going to get there. I can't do that. They got it all together. They never send. They must have time in the word 482 hours a day. I'm never going to be like that. <laughs> and your, your walk with the Lord is one minute at a time, just in and out breathing the essence of who he is. 
And I know that sounds hyper-spiritual, but it's relationship. If we would get to the relationship part. So when you say to this unconditional lover of your soul, the one who quiets us with his singing, the one who covers us with the feathers of his wings, the one who knows us inside out, the one who's told us everything we've ever done, like the Samaritan woman said, and yet he loves us. If that doesn't pour out of us, to be able to say, somebody on this assembly line certain, God, just open my eyes and every day quicken me to an opportunity where there's a word, there's a thought, there's a moment when I might be able to remind them who you are, Father. Help me to radically redefine my mm. mission field. It's never wasted. I'll bet Paul wasn't excited making tents either, but he made the tents so that he could do what he had to do to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's awesome. So true. What, what has been the hardest thing you've ever lived through? Hmm. Oh, wow. Where do I begin? Um, well, it could be having three out of five members of my immediate family be diagnosed with cancer in 10 months. It could be my son getting spinal meningitis and coming close to dying in an intensive care unit. Or it could be the time a friend at college shot my son, Sam, at close range in his head. Um, I could do any of those, or it could be the death wow. of Sam many years later from cancer. Uh, I oh have been sifted and weighed and winnowed, and I have to tell you what, um, I'm not the same person I was when I said yes as a six-year-old when I threw that stick on the fire. I realized that in this life, you will have tribulation, but I'm going to tell you what has been a constant. When my son Sam's body was laid out in front of me in a funeral home, and I looked at that, my mama used to call it the vacated apartment building and how right she was. Mm -hmm. I put my hand on his chest in front of my husband, my children, and my grandchildren. And I said, this is why Jesus went to the cross, because this is not the end. This is a goodbye, mm -hmm. but a not a goodbye forever. I said, everything you've ever heard about Jesus comes down to this moment. Either he conquered death or he's a liar. My son, Sam, is now dancing in the streets of glory with my Savior, Jesus. And I've had this little thought, by the way, where if Jesus said, and this I'm using my sanctified imagination, Janet, you get one call to Sam. When would you like to set up that call? Sam would say, Mom, I can't. I'm having a real good time. I love you. I'll see you soon, but I can't. I'm with Jesus. And then I smile and I think, oh, it's so temporary. It is so temporary. I'm going to see him again. So um, there's there's been a lot. There's been a lot, but you know what? Yeah. I look back and I think, just like all those stories about the refiner's fire, every one of us is one of three places. We're about to step into the fire. They're hearing us today in the fire, mm. or they've just come out of the fire. And every one of us who's come out of one of those fires has said, I don't ever want to be the person I was before I went in. I trust him more. I hang on to him tighter. And I believe his word with a greater depth of understanding now because I've seen the reality of who he is in the dark places. C.S. Lewis again, pain is God's megaphone. He shouts to us in our pain when you can't do anything except look up and say, help. That's when you realize what a loving father we have. Good. What is your biggest fear for the church today? Mm. Oh, you know, it's funny. All this talk we could do about culture and it would be so easy to say, oh, because all of our issues are cultural. They're not. My much bigger concern is the church, capital C, universal, of which I am a part. So I don't want this to be misinterpreted as any kind of finger pointing because, look, all those fingers are coming back at me. Only one is pointing outwards. A, first and foremost, we are biblically illiterate. 
Colossians says it beautifully, and I see this every single day. Take to it. It says, be careful that you do not get taken captive war by vain and hollow philosophies predicated on this world rather than on the word of God. God understood this was a war. We don't like to use the word culture war now that's been beaten to a bloody pulp, but I'll go to the Ephesians 6 war and that war that's going on that says you're either going to buy what's being sold in the marketplace of ideas, trash, artificial goods, hollow arguments, or you're going to adhere to the transcendent truth of God's word. That is an either or proposition. The two do not mix like water and oil. So if the church doesn't know what it believes and why it believes it, then we are going to suddenly find ourselves backtracking and saying, well, wasn't Romans really for a different time? And didn't God really say that to the Israelites, but he doesn't really mean that for us today. And we start parsing like Thomas Jefferson did with his version of the Bible and cutting out those passages we find irrelevant or uncomfortable because we don't understand them contextually. We don't understand why God put them in. He is not only the author, he's the editor-in-chief. There's not one word more or one word less than what should be in those 66 love letters. They're all there for our edification so the person of God can be totally revealed to us. That's number one. Number two, this is not a time for cowards, Lena. I am absolutely convinced of this. This is a winnowing that's taking place right now. Wheat from shaft, sheep from goats, where we acquiesce, we bow, we pull back, we retreat. Our, you know this better than anybody, the work that God has called you to everywhere else in the world, except the Western church. When you mm-hmm. say, yes, Lord, you anticipate suffering. It is part of the whole package to borrow from Lewis. Again, you understand that saying yes, Lord means there will be not if there will be fiery trials that you've been associated with a suffering savior. He's acquainted with all of our sorrows. And if we are persecuted, then we get to be called blessed in that persecution. We haven't experienced that here in the West and it's coming. I could tell you proposal after proposal after proposal. That's one cat's whisker away from being signed into law. And when it does, boom, all of those religious liberties that we've known before are going to crush. And all those people who say, no, no, I don't want to have anything to do with the culture. I don't want to have anything to do with it at all. When the culture shows up with clubs at your front door and says, we're silencing you forever. When you can no longer proclaim freely the gospel of Jesus Christ in the United States, then what are you going to do? So I think it's time for us to man up, grow up. And as Paul was talking to that church at Corinth, get off that diet of milk, get into a diet of meat and get some spiritual heft on because the time for courageous Christians is now. Joshua and Caleb didn't just say it back in the book that bears his name. We are being told today, be strong and courageous because night is coming. And if you read the Bible contextually, that shouldn't come as any surprise. Check the sky. I'm being a good sailor. I'm being a good farmer. It's coming. So when it does, right. You get to answer the question, will I be found faithful? So there's my concern for the church, gutting the gospel and being fearful. That will kill the gospel. I agree. I think that's so good. I I just feel like there's questions I want to milk out of you here in the last few minutes, just because I think it's so important. One is practical. You know so much. I mean, you interview all sorts of people, your broad base of knowledge. If a person can, you know, who's listening can be easily intimidated and be like, man, I'm never going to be able to grow in my understanding of, of current issues. Where would you advise them to start two or three books that maybe were very impactful in your life or sort of a strategy to say outside of the Bible? What What is a good sort of place to start reading to understand some of those things that you're very well versed in culture and, and, and engaging with people in these topics of conversation that you're so good at. 
Well, my learned friend, you're the one that has a ton of initials after your name, and you understand the power of reading. In fact, there's a wonderful old saying that said, "You can't think great thoughts if you don't think great if you don't read great books." And we are not we're we're not only biblically illiterate, we're generally illiterate. It's because we live in a culture that says, "I'll give you results in five seconds." So sitting down, turning off the noise, and reading is uh, it's antithetical to how we're living as 21st century Christians. But I would say, first of all, get a couple of classics under your belt. Classics have stood the test of time because they are by their very definition transcendent in their truths. So I would read Pilgrim's Progress. That is the second most published book by John Bunyan, second most published book in the history of publishing, second only to the Bible. Once upon a time, secular colleges used to require it in English literature classes. Now it's passe. We're we're beyond all of that good, solid classic stuff, and it's all touchy-feely literature, unfortunately. But Bunyan, in the late 1600s, wrote this book that explains the experience of the Christian from throwing off that backpack of sin to that moment he crosses over into what he calls the celestial city, which is heaven. But it will help you understand that the Christian's life is a journey it sounds cheesy. It sounds like you bought it at a card at Hobby Lobby, but it's profoundly true. It's about the journey every day with Jesus, one step at a time. And just like Bunyan's primary character, Christian, you're going to find yourself collapsed in the friend's house. And he calls it house beautiful, where you're nurtured by friends who bear your burden in troubled times. You're going to find yourself captive in Doubting Castle. And the giant there is called uh, the, the Doubting Castle and Giant Despair is his name. In fact, to tell you how relevant it is in this captured situation, Christian is contemplating suicide, as people can often do when they're held up mm-hmm. in COVID, when they don't have a job, when life just seems overwhelming. And what the giant does is he says this, and I'm quoting Bunyan. He said, I offer you a knife, a noose, and a bottle of poison because life is attended with so much bitterness. Well, that's not God's voice in our head. That's absolutely the enemy's head. How can you? You're alone. You're isolated. No, I can't be isolated and have a God who never leaves me or forsakes me. So there's so much you can unpack there. I would just say I would read Pilgrim's Progress and then... I would do Mere Christianity by, by C.S. Lewis because it's a great primer. And let me tell you about Lewis. He's like the most expensive meal you will ever buy at a five-star restaurant. You want to take your time. You want to clean your palate with sherbet between the courses. Read a paragraph a day if you have to, but just contemplate on what Lewis had to say. This man was brilliant, but he was an agnostic, almost an atheist, and could not quite figure out how God existed. And he really began to examine the truths of Scripture. And I have to tell you, we are in a world right now, we're just saying the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, doesn't work anymore. In this post-truth world in which we're living, we're not post-Christian anymore, we're not post-modernity anymore, we're post-truth, which means your affective supersedes your cognitive. You break that down, that means simply what you feel supersedes what is true. Oh my goodness, what a nightmare. Everybody feels differently. Where we as followers of Christ know that there is absolute transcendent truth. It's in his word and it's told us by the one whose name is truth. So therefore, you're going to be have to be able to start some of these conversations by saying, well, I hear where you're coming from. Tell me why you believe that. More questions than answered. That's a great way to get people to start talking to you. And then systematically start saying, have you ever thought about? And by the way, questions are a tremendously non-threatening way to be able to start these dialogues. So I would say mm-hmm. if you did mere Christianity and John Bunyan, that's enough to keep you for the next 12 months, but you'll be deeper in your thinking True. because Christians have to not only think biblically, they have to think critically. Yes, your heart is transformed, but the Bible says your mind is renewed. Don't forsake the idea that you have to use your mind. When Paul was up there in Acts 17, he was critically thinking to the point where he knew these people so well, he rips off poems 
from a from a pagan. That that wonderful line that I just quoted in him, we live and move our have our, and have our being, came from a pagan poet, but he co-opted the language and contextualized it in a biblical worldview. That's brilliant apologetics. And so start reading great books so you have great thoughts, but don't abdicate the word of God first, last, and always. And the other thing I would do, Billy Graham said it, is you go through life with the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. And that simply means you read the word of God and you compare it as Dwight O. Moody called that book, The Straight Stick of Truth. You use it to measure all of the crooked ideas being discussed in scripture. And you can say, oh, that's what the world says. What does the word say? And that's how you successfully navigate through life. So good. Listen, what do you do for fun? <laughs> well, <laughs> when that does happen, Greg, excuse me, <coughs> Craig and I have horses and uh, we oh. love to go horseback riding. And it's wonderful because it was That's Winston fun. Churchill said, no hour of life is lost that is spent in the saddle. And this was Winston Churchill who said that. So it's nice oh. just to be able to say, I want to just relax and uh have my focus completely on making sure I don't get thrown off a 1200 pound beast and uh, have this relationship. And it's wonderful to do it. Plus, I love the fact that Jesus is an equestrian. How do I know that? Well, he comes into Jerusalem on a colt. Some versions say a donkey. There's a mis- there could be either or. It could be a colt or a donkey. And when he comes back, he is riding a white horse. So I know that we get assigned jobs in glory. And I've said, I, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm worthy of being assigned anything. But Father, I would be thrilled if I could be the stable keeper in glory. Just let me clean the stalls. I'd be happy to do that for eternity. That's so awesome. Well, my job's going to be out when we go to heaven. So I need, I need right. to learn how no to sickness. <laughs> I got to do something. Now, this, you, Janet, I could go on. Honestly, you have a fascinating life story. And just, I love how you and your husband, just even hearing the details of how you followed the prompting of the spirit and continue to do so is so inspiring. And I, to me, I just think that, I think every Christian covets sort of that, life of obedience and saying yes to God, but then seeing God move you into the direction he wants you to be. I I think to me, that is the essence of a relationship with Jesus. And I have just loved getting to know you more today. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, what an honor. And thank you again for who you are and how you show the love of Jesus to every single person you come in contact with. You're a role model to me. Thank you. Well, uh, I love you and we'll be talking soon. And uh, guys, if you're still here, I know you are because this has been, I mean, listen, if nothing else, those of you who are listening right now know that there is a human who talks faster than me and her name is Janet Parshall. And I've been honored to have her on this show. But listen, you guys can find out a ton more about our podcast, our ministry. Just go to livingpower.org, livingwithpower.org. And if you have a question for Dear Lena, send it to me at dearlena, L-I-N-A, at livingwithpower.org. We'll be back together next week. In the meantime, have a great day. God loves you and he's not done with you yet. You keep looking up. Take care.